the story of Abraham is filled with a bunch of trees, images of trees, pictures of trees. Abraham meets with messengers from God under a tree. Uh, he builds an altar to God next to a tree. He plants a tree. He pitches his tent under a tree. He buries his wife in a cave next to a field full of trees. That's right. Um, we're exploring this curious case of trees in the Bible, how the biblical authors are obsessed with trees. They, trees come up so often, all the time. Imageries of trees, fruit, root, trees, branches comes up over and over again in the Bible. And I've been arguing in this series that the most important stories in the narrative of God and mankind always has a tree in it as you read the Bible. And we're examining these promises of God about his character and his nature that are given in and around trees. And the hope of this is not just so we can have some cool Bible facts and be like, I know cool Bible facts about trees in the Bible, but because I believe these promises of God can encourage us and sustain us in the hard moments of life. Now today we're going to draw attention to probably the most important story in the life of Abraham. And this is definitely the most important tree story in his life filled with tree stories. This story is so important, Jews believe it happened, Christians believe it happened, and Muslims believe the story happened, although they disagree about the son involved. Uh, can anyone guess the story we're talking about? Yes, Abraham binding of Isaac, or the sacrifice of Isaac. That's absolutely right. It's the story of God asking Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac on Mount Moriah. Um, what an exciting topic to have on a rainy day like this, right? Let's jump in and talk about it. So Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. And I'm sorry, normally it's up on the screen, but we came in and everything was different today. It's beautiful, but different, so we're making do. Someday later, or sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here, here I am, he replied. And then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac and go to the region of Moriah sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you early the next morning Abraham got up he loaded his donkey he took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering he set out for the place God had told him about on the third day Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance and he said to his servants stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there we will worship and then we will come back to you and Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering. He placed it on his son Isaac. He himself carried the fire and the knife, and the two of them went on together. Isaac spoke up and said, uh, Father Abraham, Father? Uh, yes, my son Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Isaac was getting a little nervous here. Um, he's like, wait a second. This doesn't look good. Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there. He arranged the wood on top. Then he bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. He reached out his hand and he took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. Now before we go into the symbolism and the tree promise in this story, let's just address the ugly reality of this at the heart of the story. 
God asked for a child to be sacrificed. That's pretty gross, right? Uh, Yahweh asked, we're all just like, well, I'm done with Christianity. Throw out this Bible. I don't want anything to do with this God. Let's look at some of the clues we're given here. First, earlier in Genesis, Yahweh calls Abraham out of a pagan culture that included child sacrifice. And he said, I'm a different type of God, and I'm going to lead you to this different country, and I'm going to make you a great nation, and I am going to be your God, and you're going to be my people. Now, this seems like a betrayal of that revelation, like, oh, he's just like all the other gods. But it's actually an inversion. The passage is written to be provocative. The biblical authors, when they wrote this down, they intended to make us wrestle with our ideas about God and what it means to trust him and what it means that he's good. Traditionally, Jewish families would read the binding of Isaac at Rosh Hashanah or the Jewish New Year. They literally start out their New Year by reading this story because they considered it the most difficult story in the Torah, in the Hebrew scriptures, and they would meditate it on meditate on it all year long they're like this is a hard one we got to wrestle with the character and nature of god and so they start off their year that way abraham was used to spiritual beings demanding blood in all the countries around him spiritual beings demanded blood they needed blood sacrifice but notice his posture here abraham isn't frantic he's not like oh my gosh what is going to happen what am i going to do he trusts that god will act appropriately the new testament authors theorize that maybe he even thought if he had to kill his son god would resurrect him because he trusted god that much if you read the story before this though abraham had a lifetime of not trusting god he didn't think god would do what is right over and over again he would be in these bad situations and he's like god's not going to do what's right god's not going to bail me out god's not going to be there for me i'm all on my own and god kept surprising him and doing what is right despite abraham's failures and doubts that's the entire story of abraham up until this point the story also begins another clue we get is by saying god was testing abraham now god doesn't give us tests like teachers give tests um, Al's sick this morning, but he's a fifth grade teacher, and he gives tests because he's like, I don't know if these kids are getting this, you know, like he's like, they're standing out there blankly looking at me, and I don't know if they're learning anything, so he gives them the test, and he's like, oh, they're getting it, or no, they're not getting it, I need to reinforce it, I need to teach more of it, that's not why God gives tests, God knows how we are going to respond. He tests us because we don't know what is in us and how we are going to respond. It's easy to say you trust God. Like, anybody can say that. It's much harder to keep trusting him when your, test, when your trust is tested. Trust is forged in testing. God was showing Abraham, your whole life you've been this fearful fool, but now you have become a man of faith. You have developed a deep confidence in the goodness of God. Another element to the story that we have to consider is the story of Ishmael. So God promised Abraham a son, a son through which the seed would come, who would grow this new tree of life to restore the relationship between God and man. We talked about that a few weeks ago. But now Abraham and his wife were really old, and they had no kids, and they'd lost all hope. In his fearfulness and foolishness, him and his wife devised this plan, though. They forced an Egyptian slave that they had obtained by conning the pharaoh of Egypt, and another act of fearfulness and foolishness, his story is completely filled with them. They forced his slave to sleep with Abraham and get pregnant with his son. Not exactly a high point in this guy's story. The son's name was Ishmael. And just a side note here, one of the things I appreciate about the Bible, like if I was making up a religion and I was like, I'm going to create this fake person Abraham, I would not make him do stupid, horrible things like this. I would not record this. 
Like, I would not share this. But one of the things I appreciate is these are real people. We don't sugarcoat the heroes in the Bible. God uses a series of messed up people. And that's really encouraging because I'm messed up. And that should be encouraging to you because you're messed up too, right? And God uses messed up people. But back to the story. So they force this Egyptian slave that they got through uh, manipulation and lies. And then they force her to sleep with her master and bear him a son. And then God keeps his promise to Sarah, Abraham's wife, and she has a son. And at that point, she's like, this other son, Mm -mm, he's got to go away. He's going to be trouble. He's going to take the inheritance away from my son. And I want my son to get everything, not Ishmael. And so she was so worried about Isaac not getting everything that she poisoned Abraham's ear until he sent his mistress and his firstborn son into the desert with one bottle of water. He sentenced them to die a slow death out of sight of his joyful new family with Isaac. This is literally the chapter right before this. And so often when we read about the sacrifice of Isaac, we forget that right before this was the sacrifice of Ishmael. He treated his flesh and blood as nothing, as something to be tossed away, as a necessary sacrifice to get what he always wanted. Just look back in Genesis 21, 15. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes, and then she went off. This is the, um, the slave that they got from Egypt, Hagar. She went off and she sat down about a bow shot away for she thought, I cannot watch my little boy die. And she sat there and she began to sob. And God heard the boy crying. Just think about that for a minute. God heard the boy crying. When you cry, God hears you. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and he said to her, what is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard your boy crying. As he lies there, lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. And then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And so she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. So as far as Abraham knows, he sent his mistress and his son off into the desert to die, except that God's intervened and kept them alive. Now look back at verse 22 in the story of the binding of Isaac. What is, uh, or chapter 22, what does God say? Take your son, your only son, whom you love. God seems to be directly addressing the lack of love for Ishmael, his other son, and how that whole thing went down in the chapter just before this. So there's a lot of layers here. Is it still a weird story? Absolutely. Is it a story we're supposed to wrestle with and struggle with? Yes. But there's a lot of layers here. It's not just a simple story of like, one time God really wanted you to sacrifice your kid, you know, glad he doesn't do that anymore. There's a lot of layers, a lot of different things happening here. Many times people on the internet or my atheist friends point to this story and they say, what a disgusting God. Like, how could you follow that God? Like, this is barbaric. This is sick. But they're missing a lot of this context of what is happening. They just Googled gross things in the Bible, you know? Um, there's some context here. And I think to really see the context of what God wants to do and wants to share here, we have to look at the trees in the story. The first mention of trees is the sacrificial wood. The wood is cut, and then it's placed on Isaac's back, and he carries the wood of his own sacrifice up Mount Moriah. And you say, okay, cool, Mount Moriah. Why do I care about that? Mount Moriah is the mountain Jerusalem is built on. It's where the Dome of the Rock, if you go to Jerusalem, today sits. It's where the temple was built. Look at 2 Chronicles 3.1. Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father 
David. It is the mountain that Jesus will be crucified on after carrying his cross, the wood of his own sacrifice on his back. And notice what Abraham says when his son starts to ask questions like, we've got a knife, we've got fire, we've got wood. Who's getting sacrificed? I'm getting nervous. What does Abraham says to his son? He says, God will provide a lamb himself. That's exactly what John the Baptist says in John 1.29. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming towards him, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John is saying the Lamb that Abraham said God would provide in place of our sons and daughters has now come, and it is Jesus, the rabbi from Nazareth. Somehow his death will save our sons and daughters from death. Somehow his death will atone for our sins. Somehow his death on a tree, on a high place, will restore the relationship between God and man. And the next tree that shows up in this Abraham story, a thicket, we don't have a ton of thickets, you know, in the suburbs or in the city of Philadelphia, Um, but as you go farther out away from cities, you see more thickets. It's a dense, interwoven web of small trees. In our gospel story, Jesus shows up with a crown of thorns, offering to save us from the worst parts of ourselves. And you might think, We would never sacrifice our child, but, you know, each of us are still capable of incredible evil. And while we might never raise a knife to another person, all the time we raise a knife when we, like, we say something to someone and we raise that knife. Or we say something hurtful or evil, or we seek revenge, or we seek selfishness, we seek our own desires and goals. We've all raised a knife. We've all hurt ourselves or hurt others or hurt the world we live in. We've all raised the knife and had God cry out, no, don't do it. I've provided a lamb to save you from your sin. You don't have to raise the knife anymore. Now, I could talk about the similarities in this story between that and Jesus all day. I mean, there's so many things. There's three days in there. I mean, it goes on and on. There's so many little things. This is such a beautiful picture of God's not interested in sacrificing Isaac. He's trying to show humanity that they need him to intervene and be a sacrifice for them. But that's not what the series is about. As much as I get excited about those things, this is a series about the promises of God given in and around trees. And so what is the promise of God here? God will provide. That's what Abraham says. And that theme is repeated throughout the story of the Bible. Here's just a quick sampling of verses. I literally could have put dozens and dozens, but here's just a few. Philippians 4.19, my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Jesus Christ. Matthew 6.26, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, they do not reap, they don't gather food into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth more than birds? Psalm 81.10, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. Psalm 34.10, seek the Lord and you will not be in want of any good thing. John 14.14, ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Matthew 6.8, your father knows what you need before you even ask him. Now these verses are great, right? I read those, I'm like, yeah, that sounds so nice. But what do you do when the provision of God feels late or absent or non-existent? What do you do when you're begging God to provide a miracle? We, we're, we're like, please bring back our lost little girl, the girl that we lost in our adoption. Like, please, God, where are you? Show up. And there seems to be no response. How do you get God to give you what you want? Are these promises empty? Are they out of date? Um, to be fair, some of these promises are plucked out of their context. You know, I see on Instagram sometimes people flash up this verse. 
They're like, that means God's going to give you that new promotion and the Ferrari, you know? I'm like, no, it doesn't mean that. Um, Philippians 4.19, which I quoted here, uh, out of context, is about Paul praying for a church's need to be, needs to be met because of their generosity in meeting his needs on his extended missions journey to start churches and share the good news of Jesus. I hear people all the time quote this verse, God will meet all your needs according to his riches, but Paul is specifically saying, as you give to the kingdom, God will continue to give so you can use what he gives for kingdom purposes, not just he'll give you whatever you want. But even with context aside, there's a clear theme in Scripture of God providing what we need. That's what Abraham says here, God will provide. It is here that we get one of the names of God. If you ever read through the Bible and there's these names where people give, call God by a certain name. In Hebrew, it is Yahweh Yaira, or as it's commonly anglicized in the West as Jehovah Jaira. Yahweh Yaira literally means God will see to it which closely ties into what Hagar said in the chapter before when we read. She says, Yahweh is the God who sees. So the promise is more than just God will provide here. The promise is Yahweh sees me in all of my need, in my pain, in all of my desperation, and he makes provision for my brokenness, my needs, and my hurt. So if that is true, what is going on when we don't have what we need? Is God asleep? Like, we know theologically God doesn't sleep, but doesn't it feel like that sometimes? When you're like, I've been praying and nothing. Like, I've been seeking and nothing. Like, where is he? Here are some of the reasons why I think God maybe hasn't provided. Sometimes we ask for something that we want, but that we don't need. Uh, Growing up, I loved to read Bill Watterson's comic, uh, Calvin and Hobbes. Anybody? Calvin and Hobbes? Okay, I'm the only, that's okay. I thought it was great. Um, I learned a lot of big words from Kelvin and Hobbes. But anyways, Kelvin was this little boy, and he had this stuffed tiger who we imagined was a real tiger. Anyways, Kelvin, it, in a reoccurring theme in the comic, would ask Santa for a flamethrower every year. You know, he's this little, like, eight-year-old boy, and he's like, I want a flamethrower and a cruise missile. And of course, he never got one. Uh, he would get games and clothes and toys, and he'd be like, I don't care. I wanted a flamethrower. Um, Of course, it wasn't good for him to have a flamethrower. He was a crazy eight-year-old boy. They don't need flamethrowers. I mean, it would have been bad for his parents and his school. We live in a world where sometimes we ask for things that aren't good for us, and we wonder why we don't get them. It's because we would burn our life down if we did. We live in a wants-based culture, not a needs-based culture. Uh, Paul Mazur of Lehman Brothers famously wrote in the 50s, we must shift America from a needs to a desires culture. People must be trained to desire, to want new things before the old have even entirely been consumed. We must shape a new mentality in America. Man's desires must overshadow his needs. And if you look at 2023, that's exactly what has happened. And it hasn't just affected how we shop, it has affected how we pray, how we approach God. Paul in 1 Timothy 6, 8 says, if we have food and shelter, we will be satisfied with that. Anybody satisfied with just food and shelter? I'm not. I remember when we moved into our house over in Ardmore, um, I was like, how soon can the Wi-Fi get turned on? Because I was like, I can't live here without Wi-Fi. Like, they're like, two days. I'm like, two days without Wi-Fi? My cell phone signal isn't good enough for me to, like, make it a hotspot. I'm not going to survive two days without Internet. 
We're not satisfied with just food and shelter. No games, no books, no toys, no change of clothes, no car. Sometimes we're asking God to provide things that are unsafe for us, like flamethrowers. Um, sometimes we're asking for relationships that are unsafe, relationships back that weren't good for us. Sometimes we're asking for things we don't need, that don't satisfy us. They simply are like salty foods that make us want more and more until we die of spiritual thirst. Sometimes God doesn't provide because we're asking for our own personal kingdom when he has promised to bring his kingdom all at once. God will provide doesn't mean that God will provide us with everything we want or even everything we need to be happy, comfortable, and safe. Sometimes we want heaven here and now, but just for us. When the kingdom of Jesus comes, sin, war, poverty, and death will be done forever. Sometimes we ask for them to be done now, but just for us. And for my family and the people I care about. Everybody else, I really don't care about the world. As long as my life is comfortable and safe and happy. And he just hasn't promised that. Often we're asking for an exception to living in a fallen world. We're asking to avoid the consequences of being broken people, surrounded by broken people in a broken world. And sometimes it seems like God isn't providing because he wants to provide through people. And they're resisting his encouragement to give or act or help. God primarily provides through people. Humans are made in the image of God. We're his representatives on earth. Most of what God gets done on earth happens in us and through us. Asking why hasn't God provided is an easy question. And it's one that comes naturally and easily. Asking what can I do to provide for someone else waiting on God's provision is a harder question and I think a better one. If you want God to provide, flip the script and instead ask him, how can I bring your provision to someone else who is hurting? Often people say something cheesy like, God will provide, but what they really mean is it's a cop-out so they don't have to do anything. Have you ever had this where you're like, man, I really could use some help with this bill, and they're like, well, God will provide. God bless you, and they walk on and they leave, and you're like, well, thanks. He's not going to provide for you, apparently, you know, through you. Sometimes people use this phrase as a way to get out, get away, so they don't have to linger with you in your pain, so they don't have to sacrifice to help you. What they mean is, God will provide, so I'm off the hook from getting involved. God provides through people of God. Sometimes he does miracles, but most often through mankind becoming the miracle. God will provide doesn't mean we don't prepare or try or passionately pursue what we need. We don't sit jobless on our couch, don't send out any anime resumes, and when people complain like, hey, you ever going to get a job? You say, God will provide! I'm just going to sit here, play my Xbox, and watch Netflix. God wants to partner with us in our need. He wants us to be involved, and he wants to be involved with what we are doing. Sometimes it's none of these things, and it still seems like God isn't providing. So how do we position ourselves to receive the provision of God? I'm going to suggest three things as we end. First, fast. One spiritual discipline we haven't talked about as we've talked about God's presence and peace the last few weeks is fasting. Fasting does make us more aware of God's presence and peace, but most people think of fasting as a way to kind of like bend God's arm, to twist his arm, to get his attention with our prayers so we have to do what we want. That's kind of how I was taught about it growing up in church. They're like, you're praying, God's not answering, fast, then he has to do what you want. You know, like, you gave up food, man, God's got to do it now, right? That's not the picture we receive in scripture. Fasting doesn't twist God's arm, neither does it make demons powerless. It defeats the doubt inside of us 
This is what Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 17. Listen to this. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast out this demon? And Jesus said to him, because of your unbelief. I say to you, if you had faith as a mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Some scholars have argued, and I tend to agree with them, that fasting is about changing our unbelief, not somehow dismantling the spiritual powers around us. Like our unbelief may be the biggest barrier, not necessarily the spiritual powers around us. Fasting also reorders our priorities. It helps us understand and ask for the things Jesus would want. It helps us see our desires in light of his objectives. I fast for like three hours and I'm like, man, nothing else matters in my life except food. I have decided, it's a, why am I buying all this stuff? It's not food. I can't eat it. All I want to do is eat. You know, it really helps you realize some of my purchases are wasteful and not needed. Really, if I have food and shelter, I am content. Fasting helps us recognize also that our deepest hunger, our most pressing need is God himself. So I want to encourage you this week, choose a day, abstain from food from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Take this time to plead with God for more of his presence, more of his peace, and more of his provision. Number two, be thankful. Often I find that when I'm waiting on God to provide something that I don't have, I ignore everything he has already given me. I don't know if this is everybody, this is certainly me. Not only do I, I ignore the past when his provision sustained me before, I ignore the present where I am currently surrounded by many good things. All I can think of is the one thing I don't have instead of the thousands of good things I do have. I spend so much time longing for the future when I will have what I want, hopefully, that I miss what God is doing in the right here and right now. Notice what the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 4, 6. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made to known to God. Now, I like to give my thanksgiving after he gives me what I want. And I'm like, thank you, God. It's about time. Thanks for showing up. Um, but what Paul suggests is being thankful with our request. When we pray, when we ask God to provide, we should come with thanks on our lips. I think this includes both thanks for what we currently have, what he's done in the past, and what he will do in the future. Now, often I'm kind of afraid to thank God for what he'll do in the future because I'm like, what if he doesn't do it? I'm going to look foolish. What if he never does it? Like, and I get into all these debates with myself. Just be thankful that a loving God listens and acts in your life. Somehow thankfulness positions us to receive from God. And the Mayo Clinic has done scientific studies on choosing to be thankful, to willfully bring to mind good things that you have and enjoy. And they found that it improves your sleep your mood, your immunity. It decreases depression, anxiety, difficulties with chronic pain, and risk of disease. So it's a win-win, both spiritually and physically. Be thankful. So this week, first thing, when you wake up, jot down three things you're thankful for. You can put them in your notes app. You can write them on a piece of paper. You can text them to a partner or a friend, and then do the exact same thing before you go to sleep. See if it doesn't change how you feel in the midst of your circumstances, even if you don't see your circumstances change. And finally, pray, ask. God, Jesus said that sometimes we don't have because we don't ask. Sometimes we miss out because our doubt says no, so we don't even try. I think, wasn't Michael Jordan famously said, like, you miss every shot you don't take? Wayne Gretzky. I think you get online and, like, every famous sports person has apparently said this at some point, you know? Probably none of them said it, and it's just attributed to them all. But 
there's something true about that. You miss every shot you don't take. And sometimes I say no for God, so I don't even ask. Sometimes we don't even try when God would say yes, if we just came to him and asked. And there's a few strange stories in the Bible where it looks like God is going to do one thing and then a human advocates and God changes directions. Now, it's very theologically strange. And in seminary, you have long debates about this. Like, can God change his mind? But it happens in the story of Abraham. It happens in the story of Moses, which we'll look at next week. God sees humans as partners in what is happening on earth. We're not lackeys. He wants to see us as partners. He wants us to see him as partnering in the work that he's doing in the world. He invites us to join him in a conversation about the future of the planet, the future of our lives, the future of our city. That's what prayer is. Prayer is not boringly giving a list of requests to the ceiling and hoping that somehow God hears. It's joining God in a conversation about your future and the future of your planet and city and family and neighborhood. The last, few li- uh, the last few weeks, we've been ending with a breath prayer. That's how we're going to end today. Darby started us off with one. And as we've been going through our failed adoption and just wrecked with anxiety and uh, sometimes anger and just all these emotions, stopping to breathe and pray has been a great way to uh, sense God's presence and peace. So just pray this with me where you are. Yahweh provider. I know you see me, Yahweh provider. You know what we need, Yahweh provider. Act quickly, Yahweh my provider. Help me trust in your silence. And Yahweh provider, give me what I need. Amen. Amen.